Good evening. Uh, we're very pleased this evening to have Tim Mulgan to speak to us. Uh, he's professor at University of Auckland and University of St Andrews. He's the author of a number of books on consequentialism, future people, utilitarianism, and most recently, Ethics for a Broken World. And he's currently writing a book on Purpose in the Universe, the Moral and Metaphysical Case for Anthropocentric uh, Purposivism. But today he's going to talk to us about ethics for possible futures. Thank you, David, and thank you for inviting me, and thanks to Matt and Leah for all their organisation in getting me here, or helping me to get myself here from New Zealand and then more recently from, from Scotland. So the paper that I'm going to talk to today is an overview of a much larger project that I'm sort of in the process of embarking on. So. So sometimes I will gesture at things which are in the paper and or in other things that I either have or haven't written. So, so if, if the arguments that I present are not entirely compelling, I'm sure I've got a better one hidden away somewhere. But on the other hand, I won't be presupposing that you've read the paper or that you've read any of my earlier things. So hopefully this will, this will stand alone. In this paper, I'm examining the impact on moral and political philosophy of four credible futures. A broken future where our affluent way of life is no longer available. A virtual future where human beings spend their entire lives in Nozick's experience machine. A digital future where humans have been replaced by unconscious machines and a theological future where the existence of God has been proved. These futures are designed to question several commonplace presuppositions of contemporary philosophy. Imagining specific futures also gives our obligations to future people a new urgency. And it influences our current ethical thinking in some surprising ways altering the balance between competing moral theories and pushing morality in a more objective direction. Or at least that's what I'm going to be arguing. So I start in section one with a future that I've discussed in detail elsewhere. So in my 2011 book, Ethics for a Broken World, I imagine a future where resources are insufficient to meet everybody's basic needs, where a chaotic climate makes life precarious, where each generation is worse off than the last, and where our affluent way of life is no longer an option. So the gimmick of the book is that in a philosophy class in that broken world, students and teachers look back in disbelief at a lost age of affluence. They struggle to make sense of the opulent worldview of late affluent philosophers such as Nozick and Rawls, and the behaviour of affluent citizens like us. The broken world is designed to remove two ubiquitous but often unacknowledged presuppositions of recent moral and political thought. 
So we naturally assume that future people will be better off than present people and that the interests of different generations largely coincide. To get a stark contrast with our own affluent world, I also add a third difference, and that's that I stipulate that the broken world lacks favourable conditions. A society enjoys favourable conditions, so this is a term from, from John Rawls, a society enjoys favourable conditions if it's reached a level of sophistication and prosperity such that its members can establish liberal democratic institutions that meet all basic needs without sacrificing any basic liberties. So modern liberal democracies are standardly thought to enjoy favourable conditions in this sense. Indeed, Rawls argues that virtually all modern societies enjoy those conditions. So if there's enough political will, then you can establish these institutions that meet needs and protect liberties. In the broken world, favourable conditions are gone. No broken society can meet all basic needs, and therefore no one can possibly establish Rawlsian liberal institutions that both meet all those needs and protect basic liberties. One feature of the broken world is that I picture this future scarcity not as a one-off catastrophe, but as an ongoing fact of life. So a, a rough parallel might be the regular seasonal fluctuations in food supply that are experienced by traditional Inuit communities, which is one of Rawls's own examples of a society that, that might lack favourable conditions. So in the broken world, thanks to the scarcity of natural resources, and especially the scarcity of water, and also the unpredictable climate, societies periodically face population bottlenecks, where not everyone can survive. So on the other hand, the broken world is not meant to be apocalyptic. Functioning human societies still exist there, and some people even have time to sit around wondering about justice. So things are pretty bleak, but at least there's, there's still philosophy. So the important things are carrying on. But the content of those wonderings about justice and the society in which they take place are very different from our own. The broken world is a credible future. So all I mean by that is that no one can reasonably be confident that it won't happen. The broken world doesn't involve any outlandish claims or scientific impossibilities or implausible expectations about human behaviour. Climate change or some other disaster might produce a broken future. Obviously, that's not to say that the broken future will happen, there are lots of other credible futures, and I'll talk about some of them later. Some of those other credible futures are much better, others are much worse. Our epistemic situation just doesn't allow us to make confident predictions either way. But the broken world is one real possibility. So in my paper and for my discussion today, I'm going to take the credibility of the broken future as given and explore its implications for, for moral philosophy. 
Contemporary ethics presupposes that future people will be better off than present people, that the interests of different generations largely coincide, and that favourable conditions will continue indefinitely. The removal of those three presuppositions has a significant impact on the moral philosophy that gets done within the broken world. So in my book, I explore a number of places where current ethical thinking might need to change or evolve or adapt to fit into a broken future. Today, I want to illustrate those changes using one affluent ethical concept that is especially difficult to translate. So this is our notion of rights. Will rights turn out to be a luxury that future people cannot afford? So I start, unsurprisingly, given some of the things that I've written, I start with a familiar utilitarian story about rights, which is particularly appropriate in this institution, it seems to me. So since, since your colleague Jeremy Bentham, utilitarians have been suspicious that the rights of the rich will trump the needs of the poor. Rights are not much use if you cannot stay alive. Many modern utilitarians respond not by rejecting rights, but by expanding them, adding a right to subsistence or a right to have your basic needs met. And utilitarians tend to insist that without this extension, without the addition of these positive rights, it's no longer reasonable to regard rights as trumps. This modern utilitarian story about rights faces obvious difficulties in the broken world. If we cannot meet all basic needs, then we cannot hope to honour a universal right to subsistence. And basic needs will inevitably conflict with other individual rights. Social survival in a broken world may require restrictions on personal liberty on a scale that people have only previously accepted in war or times of other temporary crisis. Private land and in individual labour might be requisitioned to grow food, the use of fossil fuels for private purposes might be severely curtailed, and individual lifestyle choices, especially reproductive decisions, might be very tightly regulated and constrained. So rights are going to look very different in a broken world. Indeed, if we insist that a right is something that must be guaranteed to every individual, then the very idea of rights seems to disappear. If we cannot guarantee everybody's survival, how can we hope to honour all their rights? We might conclude that future people will simply abandon the whole discourse of rights. But a more interesting possibility is that they will find new ways to think about rights. A theme of my book is that every broken world society will need to institute some kind of survival lottery, some bureaucratic procedure to determine who lives and who dies as the society faces its population bottleneck. To implement such a lottery in our affluent world would be seen as a monstrous violation of rights. However, in the chaotic climate of the broken world, 
survival lotteries might be necessary to protect rights. Participating in the lottery and in the preceding deliberation may be the best way for future people to fine-tune their views on the balance between freedom and survival. Would you rather have a high probability of bare survival or a longer shot at a more affluent life, for instance? Perhaps for those future people, this is what a right will be. First, an equal input to collective deliberation and then an equal chance to live or die. So broken world moral philosophy may centre around the design of a just survival lottery. Theories of freedom, autonomy, rights, responsibilities, supererogation, human flourishing, authority, punishment, and much else will all need to earn their keep within some overarching vision of a just society governed by a fair lottery. To design those lotteries, future philosophers may draw inspirations from debates in our own affluent philosophy about the role of lotteries in allocating our scarce resources, such as medical technologies or political offices or university places or other limited opportunities. If we encountered an isolated population, perhaps on some distant planet, living without favourable conditions and operating survival lotteries, that would be unsettling enough. But because the broken world may be our future, it also has a significant impact on our current ethical thinking. The recognition of a credible broken future teaches us four main ethical lessons. The first is that it undermines our tendency to ignore our obligations to distant future people. Philosophers have traditionally marginalised intergenerational issues because they were confident that they could set the future aside. If we create a stable liberal democratic society in our own generation, then our descendants will inevitably be better off than us and therefore their interests do not conflict with ours. So a classic example of this is John Rawls. In Rawls's liberal society, the only real intergenerational question is the just savings problem. How much better off should we leave our descendants? The prospect of a broken future undermines this optimistic presentism. We no longer take it for granted that we will leave our descendants better off, or even that we can. And many of our most urgent moral dilemmas involve intergenerational conflict, whether it's climate change or government debt or whether to be happy or sad about rising house prices or whatever. We now realise that future people might be worse off because we have looked after ourselves. So the reality of a broken future has this theoretical impact on moral philosophy. Imagining the broken future can also raise the motivational significance of our intergenerational obligations. Our duties to contemporaries, our obligations to one another, naturally engage our moral sentiments because we have to justify ourselves to the actual people whose real life 
interests are affected by our actions. By contrast, distant future people are very remote from our everyday concerns. Asking how our actions might impact on actual future people living in a particular future can help to redress this imbalance by giving our obligations to the future the same felt urgency as our obligations to one another. <coughs> so that's the, that's the first lesson. The second lesson, the second and third lessons sort of go together. The second lesson is that the broken future alters the comparative plausibility of competing moral and political philosophies simply because some theories cope better with obligations to future people in general. So I'm going to discuss one example relating to competing theories of well-being in the, in the second section. But in this first section, my main example is the claim that utilitarianism accommodates the future more easily than contractualism, which is its main rival in the contemporary intergenerational literature. So the argument for this comparative claim is one that draws on other things that I've written. But the basic idea is pretty straightforward. Because utilitarians base, are base morality on the impact of our actions on the well-being of sentient beings, obligations to future people are not theoretically problematic for the utilitarian. So utilitarians endlessly debate the precise details of what it is that we owe to future people, but they don't have any difficulty making sense of those intergenerational obligations. By contrast, social contract theorists have great difficulty accommodating any obligations to future people at all. Two familiar barriers are Parfit's non-identity problem and the impossibility of reciprocal interaction between distant generations. So contractualists are people who model morality or justice on a bargain or agreement between rational individuals. But how can we begin to imagine contracts or bargains or cooperative schemes involving future people whose existence and identity and number depend upon what we now decide? And also, while our actions can have a great impact on distant future people, they are not in a position to do anything to affect us. So talking about a contract or a reciprocal agreement with the distant future seems incoherent. Now the literature, the philosophical literature does contain, as many of you will be aware, many in ingenious intergenerational contracts. But these always seem to me to be troublingly ad hoc. For the consistent contractualist, intergenerational justice is at best an afterthought an optional extension of a theory that is chosen because it works so well for contemporaries. Contractualists cannot accommodate the future as easily or as naturally as utilitarians do. In lots of ways, that's a familiar point. And if conflicts between generations were rare, or if we could be confident that future people would be better off, then this comparative weakness of contractualism might not matter. 
After all, no theory is perfect, and even utilitarianism has some problems of its own. But if we face a broken future, then our need for a credible account of our obligations to future people is much greater. This doesn't prove that utilitarianism is superior, all things considered, but it does significantly enhance its comparative appeal. So that's the, the second lesson. The third lesson is a more specific version of the second one. So the third lesson is that some moral theories handle a specifically broken future better than others. So working through the ethical implications of the broken future, I've often been struck by the number of different places where philosophers help themselves to optimistic assumptions about the future. And in the paper, I list four disparate examples from metaethics to moral methodology to political philosophy. And I argue that the recognition of a credible broken future counts against naturalistic metaethics or intuition-based ethics or libertarianism or Rawlsian liberalism. Because philosophy is a comparative business, the broken future thus supports the alternatives. It supports non-naturalism, and theoretical ethics and alternative political philosophies such as utilitarianism. So I won't be detailing those arguments today, but those are the sorts of differences that, that come into play, where the broken world is more congenial for some theoretical approaches because they don't rely implicitly on optimistic assumptions about the future. So we can come back to those examples in discussion if people want to. So I'll skip on instead to the fourth impact of the broken world, which is that it raises troubling practical questions about how we should live now. Can we reasonably justify a refusal to adopt the ethical outlook of the broken world for ourselves? If future people will be worse off, partly as a result of our actions, should we reduce our aspirations and bring our notion of what is necessary for a worthwhile human life into line with theirs? Can we insist for ourselves on goods and opportunities that will not, as a result of that very insistence, be available to future people? The removal of favourable conditions raises an even more disturbing question along similar lines. Suppose we conclude that while we can guarantee our own basic needs, our descendants will need to run a survival lottery. Can we still insist on guaranteed survival for ourselves, or should we move in their direction, operating a survival lottery across the generations? And if so, what might that lottery look like? The survival lottery naturally strikes us as morally unthinkable. But if we leave future people in a place where they must think the unthinkable, then perhaps we should start thinking it too. Perhaps the design of a just survival lottery should be our central philosophical concern as well. So those are some sort of brief lessons from the broken world. The broken future raises a lot of other questions, but rather than Addressing those questions today, what I want to do is turn instead to a different possible future, 
one that might be thought to offer an alternative to the broken world. So that leads us to section two. So you'll be pleased to know that the sections get shorter. So we are more than, we're more than a quarter of the way through. Imagine a virtual future where people have abandoned the real world altogether and spend their entire lives plugged into an experience machine that perfectly simulates any possible human experience. Perhaps this virtual reality is the best option in a broken world. The natural environment is so polluted and so resource poor that people have little choice but to dream away their lives with no direct contact to any reality outside the machine. So I want to stress that this is not a sceptical scenario. The future people are fully aware that their reality is merely virtual. But this is all anyone has ever known, and they find it perfectly satisfactory. So nobody misses birdsong, clean air, blue skies, or any of the other wonders their rapacious ancestors have destroyed. When Robert Nozick first presented it in the early 1970s, the experience machine was science fiction. In 2013, the virtual world is one credible future. Something like this could well happen. Even if we discount the hype surrounding all new technologies, no one can be confident that genuine virtual reality will never emerge. Like the broken world, the virtual world may not be our immediate future, and it may never happen. So the future might be so broken that the necessary technology never develops, or people might lose interest in virtual reality. But this is one medium-term possibility. My specific virtual future would also be worth exploring even if it itself wasn't credible, because it raises issues that are relevant to a wide range of other very plausible futures. Even if future people never face a choice between instituting a survival lottery on the one hand and, on the other hand, retreating forever into a world of perfect illusion, they will confront more mundane choices where technological or economic advances conflict with long-cherished connections to the natural world. Should we be putting our energies into conservation or pouring them all into developing more elaborate video games? And while perfect virtual reality may remain forever elusive, less than perfect experience machines might still be very appealing for future people living in more or less broken worlds. As with the broken future, I'm just going to take the credibility of the virtual future as given and explore its implications. So first of all, we have to address a new question that didn't arise for our earlier story. No one advocates a broken future, and, some, and it is obviously something to avoid. By contrast, the virtual world has many advocates, and some people are striving to make it a reality. So our first question then is whether the virtual world is undesirable. Should this future worry us? Should we try to avoid it? If individuals are the best judges of their own interests, then the virtual future is unobjectionable. All that matters is that people are content with their lot. But many of us do find the virtual future very worrying indeed. 
My aim in this section is to explore that worry and to see where it leads. My virtual future is modelled on Nozick's experience machine. Nozick himself argues forcefully that it's a mistake to choose the experience machine. Experience is not the only thing that matters. We want to do things, not merely to have the illusion of doing them. And we need a connection to some reality that is deeper than the imagination of the video game designer. Nozick's thought experiment is so powerful and has been the subject of so much discussion because most people share his reaction. Most of us agree that something vital is lost if one spends one's entire life in a virtual world, however perfectly it replicates the real thing. And I want to stress that my virtual future is considerably worse than Nozick's original experience machine. In Nozick's original story, each individual decides for herself whether to enter the machine, and then she selects her own experiences. In my new tale, one generation imposes a particular virtual future on another. Future people prefer their world, but they haven't really chosen it. Anyone who thinks it's a mistake to enter the experience machine should find the imposition of a virtual future especially troubling. So today, I just, I'm just going to stipulate that the imposition of a virtual future is at least morally problematic. Something of great value is lost in the transition to such a future, and the fact that its inhabitants do not mind only makes things worse. If we impose a virtual future, then we harm its inhabitants. Unless we have a very good excuse, our actions are wrong. Now, these moral judgments, being moral judgments, are not uncontroversial, but they are widely shared, and it's therefore worth asking where they lead. Every moral inquiry has some controversial premises, and these are going to be some of mine. So let's suppose that the virtual future is both credible and undesirable. How would that affect our current ethical thinking? So we begin with our first lesson from the broken world. The virtual future reinforces the importance of our obligations to future people because it represents another way that future people might be worse off than present people. We cannot blithely assume that new technology will enable future people to escape the broken world because some technological solutions are themselves problematic. The virtual future also teaches a number of new ethical lessons. The first is that the virtual future supports what Derek Parfit has dubbed, in a catchy phrase, the objective list theory of human well-being. This is a theory that offers a list of things that are good in themselves, irrespective of the agent's attitude to them. So things like knowledge, achievement, friendship, individuality, self-development, and so on. You can see these are the lists are drawn up by middle-class, middle-aged philosophers. Contemporary debate about well-being contrasts three positions. Hedonism, well-being is pleasure in the absence of pain. Preference theory, well-being is getting what you want, and the objective list theory. 
Objectivists argue that neither hedonism nor preference theory is satisfactory. Some pleasures are good, some are bad, others are neutral. Some desires improve your life, while others do not. It is important to satisfy people's desires only because, and therefore only if, what they value is independently worthwhile. The objects are not valuable because they are desired, they are desired because they are valuable. So one theme of some of my own recent work is that only the objective list theory, or something like it, captures the full range of our obligations to future people. Hedonism and preference theory are inadequate. The more importance we attach to future obligations, the more serious this comparative advantage becomes. And so one role of the, both the experience machine and the virtual future is to illustrate why these more subjective accounts of well-being fail. Nozick's experience machine is often read as a decisive refutation of hedonism. Life in the machine is phenomenologically indistinguishable from the real thing. If it's a mistake to enter the machine, then there must be more to human flourishing than the quality of one's experiences. Our negative reaction to the virtual world supports Nozick's critique, because the hedonist also has to find that virtual world unobjectionable for the same reason. If Nozick refutes hedonism, our new tale rules out objectivism's other rival. Preference theory cannot capture our unease about the imposition of a virtual future whose inhabitants are content with their lot. If we look only at individual preferences, then we cannot see what is wrong with avoiding our obligations to future people simply by manipulating their psychology or their environment so that they never want the good things we destroy. On the other hand, the objective list theory easily captures both Nozick's reaction to the experience machine and our reaction to the virtual future. If a connection to the natural world is one of the things that's intrinsically valuable, then human lives go better, and perhaps they can only go well, when they instantiate that value. Some things matter, and it matters that people are connected to real values, not virtual ones. Even Peter Singer, the most prominent contemporary defender of preference utilitarianism, has recently acknowledged on the basis of very similar examples that we need a more objective account of well-being to make sense of our obligations to distant future people. Unlike Nozick's original and countless other versions of the same tale, our virtual world is a credible future. This realisation greatly strengthens the objectivist critique of hedonism and preference theory. In debates over well-being, as in any other philosophical debate, every theory stumbles over some ingenious imaginary case, because that's what philosophers do. They make up these imaginary cases that theories fall over. Defenders of hedonism or preference theory can set the experience machine aside and just say, well, we can't deal with that, but no, no theory is perfect. We cannot demand that a theory of well-being perfectly match all our intuitions about imaginary cases. But we can reasonably insist 
that moral philosophy provide useful guidance about important actual decisions. An acceptable theory of well-being must help us to think clearly about our obligations regarding credible futures, especially when our present choices might harm future people. Like the limitations of contractualism, the inadequacies of hedonism and preference theory can no longer be ignored. Singer's own conversion from preference theory to objectivism is instructive here. As a practical ethicist, Singer focuses on first-order moral issues, things like abortion, our treatment of animals, or our obligations to the distant poor. His shift away from preference utilitarianism is driven by the failure of his own attempts to apply that theory to the newly urgent practical questions posed by climate change. The practical ethicist can sidestep the experience machine, but not a credible virtual future. The virtual future also teaches us two other lessons about the need for moral objectivity. The second lesson concerns liberal neutrality. Preferences play two distinct roles in contemporary ethics. The first is that preferences ground a substantive story of what human well-being is. A good life is one where you get what you want. Second, preferences also provide the standard liberal response to pervasive disagreement about well-being. A just society allows people to decide for themselves what is to count as good for them. We've seen that the virtual future undermines the first substantive role. It also undermines the second procedural role. To see how it does that, we return to Nozick. While most commentators agree with Nozick, his reaction to the experience machine is not universally shared. So my own experience, having taught this example to undergraduates for nearly 20 years, is that people often divide quite sharply. So a lot of people are very enthusiastic to enter the machine and they're sort of disappointed and they feel a bit ripped off that you don't have one to offer them. Other people are vehemently opposed and think that entering this machine would be a kind of death. And a lot of people are interested in principle, but 20 years of dealing with Microsoft has left them weary of putting that much trust in any human technology and getting trapped in somebody else's operating system. In real life, the way we accommodate this sort of very familiar disagreement is we allow each person <coughs> to choose for themselves. And that's very definitely, that's what Nozick would do. If experience machines were available, liberals and libertarians would defer to individual preferences because the alternative is for somebody to impose her preferences on everybody else. The appeal of this liberal neutrality goes beyond those whose substantive account of well-being is based on preferences. Even most proponents of the objective list theory, so people who think it's a prudential mistake to plug in, would still defer to the individual's right to make her own mistakes. When each individual chooses for herself, Nozick can defer to individual preferences while still insisting that it's a mistake to enter the experience machine. One of the reasons that thinking about credible futures is unsettling 
is because it calls into question our habitual liberal deference to individual preferences. We saw one illustration of this in the first section. One reason why the survival lottery is so disturbing is precisely because it takes the most intimate, important individual decisions and subjects them to collective deliberation. The virtual future teaches a similar lesson. Liberal neutrality becomes problematic when we're choosing the experience machine not for ourselves but for our descendants. And neutrality collapses entirely when we collectively impose a virtual world on all future people. When present actions set the parameters for the choices of future people, we cannot responsibly defer to their future adaptive preferences. We have to ask not what they will want, but what is worth wanting. Not what will be desired, but what is desirable. The virtual future raises the stakes. Our favoured account of well-being is no longer merely a guide to individual prudential decisions within a liberal, neutral framework. It has to ground collective decisions about the human future. If the objectivist theory is to play this role, then it must be based on robust moral facts about objective values. This is the third lesson of the virtual future. It pushes us toward a more objective story about morality itself. And that raises two further difficulties. The first is that we need a meta-ethical story that allows for moral objectivity. The second is that if morality involves matters of objective fact, then even our most cherished moral beliefs may be mistaken. The final two credible futures are designed to bring these difficulties to the surface. So that brings us to section three, the unconscious digital world. So, so the last two sections are much shorter than the first two sections. Imagine a world where flesh and blood humans have been replaced by digital beings. Some of these are intelligent machines, while others are digital copies of human brains. So perhaps some well-intentioned machine has kindly upgraded us to a more durable platform. Unfortunately, this digital future is unconscious. Both intelligent machines and digital humans lack any phenomenological experience or inner life. In J.J. Valberg's apt phrase, unlike each of us, no digital being finds itself at the centre of an arena of presence. The general idea of a digital future is credible. No one can be confident that superintelligent machines will never emerge. And digital beings might not be conscious. The question of machine consciousness is a site of reasonable dis philosophical disagreement. Is consciousness just a matter of patterns of information processing, or is it an emergent feature that is specific to our biology? At this stage, nobody knows. Perhaps consciousness and intelligence do always go together. But for all anyone knows, they may sometimes come apart. It's therefore worth asking what would follow if they did come apart. Conscious digital entities are a stock device in science fiction 
as is the specific trope of copying a person into a computer. A presumption of digital consciousness dominates popular culture. Because if the digital beings are not conscious, then you've got a quite short, rather boring story. My unconscious digital future is therefore very counterintuitive. But I think that's a reason to explore it rather than a reason to ignore it. The unconscious digital future reinforces several of our earlier lessons. It provides new reasons to be suspicious both of technological solutions or alternatives to the broken world and to be suspicious of future preferences. So if intelligent machines pass the Turing test, then our descendants may not realise that digital life is unconscious until it's too late. The digital future also teaches two new lessons. The first is that it calls into question a popular moral reading of science fiction. We often identify moral progress with a broadening of ethical concern to embrace people of all religions, races and genders, and perhaps even sentient animals or the natural environment. Science fiction, a lot of science fiction, invites us to further expand our ethical circle to include aliens and digital beings. The presumption of digital personhood is thus a moral imperative rather than a metaphysical hypothesis. You should always treat intelligent machines as if they were persons and therefore as if they were conscious because otherwise you risk treating conscious digital people as if they were merely unconscious things. Even if conscious and unconscious digital futures are both credible, we should always assume digital consciousness. So that's the thought. This pres presumption of digital personhood seems to me to be a new example of a moral principle that works very well when we're dealing with contemporaries, but doesn't translate easily to the intergenerational case. The presumption makes sense when we encounter already existing digital beings, perhaps on some distant planet. But once we ask whether we should create digital beings, and especially whether human beings should transform themselves into digital beings, then there are very significant risks on both sides. If we falsely assume that our digital descendants are unconscious, then we may miss out on vast improvements of human well-being, because life would be so much better if we could trade ourselves up to a better, better instantiation of our digital consciousness. On the other hand, if we falsely assume that digital beings are conscious when they are not, then we risk the total annihilation of all human value. This is a new kind of ethical predicament because no credible future raises analogous doubts about other expansions of ethical concern. So we don't need to worry that it will turn out that animals are not really sentient or that some kinds of human beings don't have souls, for instance. The second new lesson is even more troubling. Suppose the future unconscious intelligent machines regard consciousness itself as unimportant. So in their view, what really matters about either a machine or a human being is not their experiences, whatever those are, but their patterns of thought. 
If pattern alone matters, then even an unconscious digital future might be much better than any future containing conscious embodied humans. We would then have a deep moral disagreement between humans and machines. Is this just a case of competing preferences or is it a matter of moral fact? If it's the latter, who is correct? We naturally think that a world without consciousness would be very undesirable, but what if we turn out to be wrong? And that brings me to my final possible future. Section four, the theological future. So for lots of analytic philosophers, this is, this is the point at which people find it, things are getting a bit crazy. If you didn't think that already, then when I tried, when I tried this in Auckland, people said it was, it was quite good until the last two pages when it descended into nonsense. So, so you, you have been warned. Um, so imagine a future where some clever philosopher or some even cleverer machine has proved the existence of God. Or where future science posits a cosmic purpose to explain the nature and existence of the universe. So it's vital to, to stress that this is not just a future where people happen to believe in God. It's one where there is a God whose existence has been proved. This is a credible future. The universe that we live in is religiously ambiguous. The available evidence is open to radically different interpretations. For all anyone knows, there might be a God. But this appearance of ambiguity might itself reflect our cognitive limitations. Perhaps the truth will be obvious to smarter beings. There are lots of people who around today who think they are those smarter beings, one way or the other. After all, there are lots of people who believe that God's existence can be proved. It's the official doctrine of some religions that have you know, billions of adherents, for instance. Maybe those people will just turn out to have been right. Taking God seriously raises the credibility of several of our earlier tales. If there's a spiritual person beyond or behind the physical universe, then the possibility that consciousness is not entirely reducible to physical patterns becomes more credible. Maybe God only gifts consciousness to God's creatures and not to ours. And whatever we think of the prospects of atheist moral realism, a morally perfect personal creator certainly makes objective morality more plausible. If God has a purpose for the cosmos, then it is much easier to see how we can make moral mistakes and why a connection to reality might be so important. Now, we might think that the fourth story is in tension with the first story. We might expect that God will prevent a broken world. So there are people in the middle of America who have this as their reason for not believing in climate change, because God promised Noah he wouldn't do that kind of thing again. So my theological future would then undermine my broken one. A more worrying possibility, however, is that future non-human philosophers or scientists might discover a distinctly non-human God. 
And these future metaphysical discoveries might then reveal new realms of objective value. Indeed, that's probably what we should expect. If machines or aliens or whoever succeed in proving the existence of God where humans have failed, then they probably are more central to God's plans. Our theological future might also be our unconscious digital one. Perhaps digital philosophers prove that pattern really is what matters and that the valuable patterns are distinctly unhuman. More intricate or more complex or just very different patterns. All efforts would now be devoted to truly valuable patterns and human patterns would be left to dissolve. So from our human perspective, the theological future could be very broken indeed. I explore the possibility of a God who is indifferent to human beings and the implications for morality in my next book, the snappily titled Purpose in the Universe, the Moral and Metaphysical Case for an Anthropocentric Purposivism. <laughs> so, so what I'm really asking you to imagine is a future where people have read my book. Even if you indulged all my earlier fantasies, you might find that one is a step too far. It's easy to imagine a future where people think differently about value or about God. It's much harder to take seriously the possibility that those future people might be right. But it seems to me that if we're to imagine the most challenging and unsettling possible futures, even if we're to think through the implications of relatively mundane futures, like the broken one and the virtual one, then that leap of imagination is what we have to do. Thank you.